everybody, this is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That is true. Author to Author is brought to you by the Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. You can check out my conversation with National Book Award winner Andrea Barrett. What a great conversation. You might have heard it here. Well, you can watch it. What a sweet woman. Really like that conversation. You can go find it at uh, PA, or authormagazine.org. And we are funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They have been supporting writers from Penda Publications since 1955. And, you know, if you want to learn about them, we just finished our conference. And um, going to be another good one next year, I'm sure. Ah, we're going to be doing a little mini-conference, a virtual mini-conference at the end of October. That's right. That was tentatively planned. More on that later. So put that in your little pocket and think about it. That's right. See, that's how we work here at the PNWA. So you can learn more about the PNWA and all the fabulous work they do at pnwa.org. So, uh, yes, speaking of teaching, uh, again, I'm I'm recording this tomorrow. I'm heading up to Alaska. So, uh, and now when you hear this, I've already done it. So if I saw you up in Alaska, I hope we had a great time. I'm looking forward to it. I've never been to Alaska, and uh, I'm going to spend almost all my time indoors not looking at Alaska, So, uh, but that'll be all right. That'll be all right. Uh, but speaking of new things, new things, today's guest, Michael Oren, I've interviewed a lot of people who've written a lot of kind of books. He's different in certain ways because he was an ambassador. He used to be the ambassador to the U.S. from Israel, and, you know, very interesting guy, had been involved in politics at the highest level, uh, and he loves to write. Such an interesting uh, conversation. So as I said, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren, is the winner of both the Los Angeles Times History Book of the Year Award and the National Jewish Book Award, both for Six Days of War, June 1967, and The Making of the Modern Middle East, as well as a celebrated historian and diplomat. With Swan's War, that's his novel, uh, Michael Oren returns to his first love, fiction writing, bringing his immense creativity, intelligence, imagination, historical perspective, and expertise to this unique crime novel. And it is unique. It's pretty awesome, and we had a great conversation. Such an interesting guy. A lot of surprising turns to this conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. All right. Michael. Michael Oren, how are you doing? I am excellent, Bill. I'm yeah. even better yeah. now that I'm with you. Oh, well, that's so sweet of you to say. Congratulations, first of all, on Swan's War, which, if I my research is even remotely accurate, is book number three and novel number one. Or maybe you got way more books than that, maybe, that I don't know anything about, that aren't mentioned in your CV. That is, it is fiction work number five. What? Oh, Jesus. All right, never mind. number <laughs> nine. Book all right, nine. all right, never actually, mind. I have never, I have actually never counted, so thank you. Okay. Um Okay. Yeah. Book number nine. All right. Okay. Book number nine. Well, see, my my shoddy research has turned up that much. Okay. But this is your most recent book. Uh, yes. I, I was thinking about this a little bit beforehand, which is that I have interviewed lots of different people and tons of tons of lawyers who become novelists and journalists who become novelists and academics who become novelists and doctors, film directors, blah, blah, blah. You are my first, my first ambassador. And so- uh, yes, you are my very first. So, and you are just for our listeners know we're the am ambassador, the American ambassador 
from Israel. Is, yes, that's how you define that. Is it the, it's to America from Israel? Yes. 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 yes you got yeah. it. Yeah. I know it's hard. Yes. I, yes, yes. Yes. You're born in America. You were yes. born in New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. As so, one is. What's that? As one is. As one is. Right. <laughs> and so, okay. Right. So obviously, you were interested in politics and foreign affairs and global politics anyway. Is that from an early age? Is that fair to say? Very fair to say. Uh-huh. Yeah. So and... just out of curiosity. So when I was a young kid, young person, I didn't care about it at all. I wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't want people to tell me about it. I didn't want to hear about it. So talk to me about someone who's 16, 17, 18 and gets interested in it. Was that when you, were you already interested in it that young? I would say about 11, 12. Okay? Wow. Move back about, about yeah, 11, 12. Listen, I grew up in the 60s. Yeah. And you yeah. couldn't ignore politics if you wanted to. Right. They were right. pouring through your television. They were parading down your streets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. International affairs. It was Vietnam. It was the Six Day War. It was the Cold War. It was sitting under our desks with coats over our heads while yeah. the sirens went off for a nuclear alert. Uh, there was just no way that the world was not going to intrude on your life in a suburban, you know, northeast city. This right. just wasn't. Yeah. Uh, my father, my father uh, uh, had landed on Normandy. Wow. I also participated in the Korean outfit. My uncle did too. Um, so this notion of of, of being involved in the world in sometimes very violent ways yeah. was uh, was a key part of my growing up. Right. And it's so interesting because you're so small, <laughs> you know, and your reach as a kid is so limited, but you already were must have been dreaming in some way of being involved, not dreaming as just imagining, planning, trying to envision yourself as a part of this very, very grown up. I mean, you can't, to me, if you had to define grown up, international politics lands there does that mean it's so yeah, far it, from it, childhood that seems that's seemingly daunting in itself but my, my my ambitions went well beyond that i gotta tell you why <laughs> because not only did i want to be a, a an actor in, in international affairs i wanted to be a writer and uh, at from an early age i realized that there was a certain dissonance there i mean how do you rectify the two and, and rectify the two I, I looked at people who had done this you know archibald mcleish uh, yeah, that's right. And you know, it, it wasn't as if there weren't some, you know, there, there, even Disraeli was a statesman and a writer. He was a novelist. Yeah. And uh, these these were my childhood heroes, you know, along with Mickey wow. Mantle. And, um, and 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 trying, I think the part of like the late motif of my life has been trying to reconcile these two paths. Yeah. And to be a writer and to be a statesperson, I had a sort of a visceral objection to writers who only studied literature who only studied creative writing right i didn't go out to the world i wanted to be that writer who went out in the world and could write could draw on his experiences i i spent years as a soldier i've been in wars uh, i could draw on that experience right. um, uh in any university but also in government i was an elected official i was in the prime minister's office can draw on these experiences and i think that that i would like to think that this has enriched my my fiction yeah that is so interesting. And so, but you're, so you were, so when did you, so obviously like, you know, in terms of your studies and your professional life, you were pursuing a career in between academia and politics within international affairs. So, you know, that was, I assume you studied what? Uh, I studied Middle University. East, I studied Middle East, Middle East history, uh, right. Arabic uh, and, uh, and international relations. So okay. I ended up getting all of four degrees in this. Um, <laughs> really. 
<laughs> uh, so I must say, I, I probably learned, I, I participated in the last round of negotiations with Israel and the Palestinians, and I learned more than really? hours of negotiations that I've learned in years of, see, of university. This, you this to me, can't leave, you can't leave, can't learn in the classroom. Just that can't. is so, so obvious when you say it, you know, yeah. that how can you replace what it actually is to be? You know what it reminds me of a little bit, Michael, is that as I told you before the interview, I don't. Even though I'll read, I'll read your book and read about what you've done. I don't prepare any questions, and that's because I learned until you, I see you on this screen, and you say the words "hello." I, at the moment you say "hello" to me, I've already learned more about you than all your biography, and it's, it's something immediate, it's visceral, and so I always base my questions on that. And it seems to me the experience of being an actual ambassador, negotiator, how can you replicate it in? The theater and it's true of, it's true of public service in general you know we would sit in the white house like at two three in the morning we'd be arguing for hours right and at a certain point there, there would be a realization that those of us around the table at two o'clock in the morning and not sleeping and not eating and not being with our families act we had more in common with one another than all the millions of people outside the white house because uh, wow. we were we were service we were servants right. we, we had made that decision to you know to be people of service and he had it on that level even if you disagree profoundly with somebody you could uh, you could respect them very much, right? It was, right. It was a beautiful thing. Um, it was, um, but I you know I had my I had my challenges, Bill. I was I was very uh, I still am uh, dyslexic. Uh, oh, and you, wow, wow! They did not they did not know what dyslexic was. They didn't oh. know what, what learning disabilities was. So I was considered uh, uh, mentally handicapped and put yep. into special, put into special classes. Wow, uh, for uh, for mentally challenged people. With and I got the worst the teachers, and I yeah. um, never learned basic math, didn't learn basic grammar. And what saved me was poetry. Because poetry why? Because I start, I started writing when I was twelve, and uh, thirteen I'd written my my first collection of poetry called "Who Cries for the Soul of the Pigeon." Only a, an adolescent <laughs> would have a I like it. And and I kept on writing poetry, and, and eventually I, I began to publish a few poems. My first poem believe it or not was published in 17 magazine and Wait, really that's <laughs> hey that's not too bad man that's a slick that's a new york <laughs> slick you got published in yeah make that up there's a couple of stories you can't make up here and a, a couple of teachers began to notice that i could write poetry that maybe maybe i wasn't mentally handicapped but i could write poetry so they put me in um in some honored english program and it was terrifying i was so scared uh, wow and you know going into these classes where i didn't know i didn't know how to spell I really didn't know how to spell, and um, and it was very difficult. I still, you know, you learn how to deal with dyslexia, and you learn how to actually harness it in certain ways. It can be very yeah. creative to think out of the box. Um, but it, it was always that problem. Okay, now that I was writing poetry, uh, how do I deal with that other side of me that wants to be the statesman, the soldier, the person? Of so, so of you 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 knew you had dyslexia. You knew you yes. were in. They were putting you in these special classes, and your self-image must have been haywire because in order to be a statesman and a scholar, you have to have a self-image as smart, however you categorize that, right? I would think it'd be hard to, to overcome a sense that you're lacking something to go into a field which requires so much intellectual rigor, which, I mean, that's certainly my view of it. I don't know if you held the same view of it. I did, and part of it I ascribe to to belief, what you call in America, faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was a person, remain a person of faith, uh, and to, to believe that, you know, your life has some kind of meaning. Yeah. And, uh, and you have a purpose and you're, you're here to serve. I feel that, I feel that very deeply. Um, but 
and I, I think some of it often comes together in writing, which for me is a very spiritual experience. Yep, I agree. A deeply, deeply spiritual experience. Yep. And the first, the first poem, I never forget the feeling I had in writing my first poem. I came home, and I think it was in sixth grade. I had this strange feeling, not not kind of strange feeling you think a twelve year old boy is going to have. <laughs> and uh, and I sat down and I wrote a poem, and I had never written a poem before. Wow. And it, it was, and that's what I said. Wow, what was that? And then every day I came home and I wrote poetry because I was kind of a loner. And, you know, I wasn't particularly good at sports back then. Right. And, uh, um, and 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 I, I realized at an early age that this is who I am. Now, that realization became very, very important later in life as the rejections piled up. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I don't want you or any of your listeners to think that this is a story of unbridled, <laughs> uninterrupted success. <laughs> anything but and uh we're talking about i used to save all my rejections oh you did oh okay that was the thickness if you remember what it looked like the manhattan phone book yeah and yeah. uh it, and everyone hurt everyone hurt as much as the first one uh the first one i went in my room and cried for a couple of days wow and, uh and it, if you don't have that realization of who you are then that that can very quickly discourage you okay. and um I had uh, teachers told me I should stop writing. My best friend told me I should stop writing because he couldn't bear the sight of me getting beaten right. up by rejection letters anymore. Right, right. <laughs> that and, is uh, so interesting, Michael. It is so interesting. I wonder, I suspect, you know, Henry Winkler, uh, the actor Henry Winkler, I interviewed him and he has dyslexia and he his writing, he would write these books. He finally wrote these books about a kid with dyslexia and it very much helped him and it really helped him see himself as he always thought of himself as stupid because of the dyslexia and the books helped him change that self-image. And I wonder if the poet, the poetry, because of its lack of, I mean, there are rules, but you could break them if you want. Like it's up to you what you want to do, that that allowed some something through because you weren't dealing with the uh, the sort of imposed structure of prose where it's a little more. It's a little more. I mean, you can break rules there, obviously, but I wonder if poetry just let you loosen up in some way. It did at that time, and I wrote free verse. Yeah. Um, but as I've aged, um, I've come to relish the structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and though we're here talking about about Swan's War, about the yeah. novel, my my, um, my penultimate book was a collection of short stories called The Night Archer, which are fifty-one short stories, each one completely different, really right. different. Uh, right. Ghost stories, love stories, mystery stories. I'm now completing a second collection of, of short stories. And um, I love the structure of short fiction. Yeah. Um, you have a, a, a short story writer has to do in three pages what a novelist does in 300. Yeah. Yep. It, it, every syllable has to count. That, it, this, they're like poems in a way, yeah. aren't they? It's, like you... very, it, it's the haiku of fiction. Yeah. 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 And, I agree. Um, I kind of love that. I kind of yeah. love the, 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 the challenge. Okay. Can I get this idea into four pages? Yep. Yeah. Develop this character in three pages. Yeah. Um, that, it's a wonderful challenge. I, I remember I, I, I wrote an essay a day for years, five days a week, and they were all 400 words. And I started to wanting to make some of them stories, little stories. And I said, I wonder if I can do a story in 400 words, you know? And when I realized I could, it changed my writing so much for the better. Helped me learn what better. I didn't need for a story to actually happen, like how little you need. So, okay, Swan's War. Swan's War, what an interesting book. And an interesting setting and time. Um, so this is fiction 
novel so you had when you when you said you published fiction does that include the short story collections or yeah, i have two i have two collections of stories and, and three novels okay so do you start with an image a character high concept where does it usually start for you well first of all i don't go to it it comes to me it good 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 okay and, and that's true even with short stories but i'll yeah, be yeah. walking down the street i don't know i'll be doing the dishes right all of a sudden there'll be a knock on my shoulder good and and i'll you know i'll turn around and i'll and something will say hi i'm your novel good you don't know me but you will <laughs> <laughs> and i've come over the years to acknowledge saying oh you're my novel uh yeah. and to sort of open the door and, and let them in uh but it, that could the gestation can take many years um okay. and my father was a veteran uh, the U.S. military has has resorts all over the United States. I don't know if you know this. Oh. And we used to go, we used to go to military resorts, and one of them is at a uh, a uh, a former naval in, in installation along the Massachusetts shore yeah. called Fourth Cliff, called Fourth Cliff, which is of course the name of the island. Yeah. This. And it was uh, while fishing in Fourth Cliff that the idea came to me uh, initially of a small fishing village at the height of World War II. Um, with a murder scenario. I didn't know what it was. Okay. Um, over the years, uh, I taught in Boston as yeah. a visiting professor. And, um, and I, I, my family is originally from Boston. Yeah. I kind of love, I love that. I love, I love New England. I love the, I love the Massachusetts uh, shoreline. I love the maritime. And so um, eventually I just made up the island called Fourth right. Cliff. Right. It's a small, it's, it, it's defined, the book is described as a poor man's Nantucket. Right, uh, right. About twenty miles off the, the Massachusetts shore, it's got a, a thrice daily, a thrice daily ferry to Falmouth, uh, and it's all imaginary. And right, right. Uh, but you haven't seen the actual book. The book, when it comes out, it's going to have a map in the front. Oh, of the I, got book. It. I got it. Map of the island. Oh yeah, I, I got know. it. Oh, that was in the actual map. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. The book. That, that, that's the galley book. It's going <laughs> to have a map in it because I actually saw this island in my mind. Wow. And then I saw my hero. Yeah. And my yeah. hero. Um, couldn't have been, you know, further from me. I mean, to yeah. me, the great joy of, of fiction writing is not being me. <laughs> it's right. being anybody right. I want to be. Right, right. Freedom, freedom. And, I, and my freedom led me to a character who is a an Irish woman from South Boston, a poor working class neighborhood. She's the daughter and granddaughter of policemen. Police, policemen, she's a policewoman in the 1940s at a time there were very few policewomen. They were actually called women. They were women called women policemen back then. I, if you had told me there was no such thing as police women in the 40s, I would have believed you. I would have thought it was that rare. That... And they weren't allowed to carry guns. They, right. didn't really do, they didn't walk beats. Right. And there was not a single woman police uh, captain in the United States. And uh, and so they have prejudice within the police force. But then it's it worse. She, she meets and marries the captain of the police force on this island in Fourth Cliff. She moves to Fourth Cliff and she encounters all sorts of oppositions. First of all, she's a Catholic woman right. yeah. in South Boston. This is a, a, a serious, you know, congregationalist island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, don't, yep. they don't take to those, they don't take to those Pappas, yep. right? Pappas, and, right. <laughs> it can be furthest to me. I'm, I'm a Jewish guy writing about Protestants. Right. <laughs> how, how much, how much fun is that? And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and a man writing about a woman. Um, and then things get really bad because World War II breaks out and her husband is a Marine, uh, officer in the reserves. He goes off to the South Pacific. He leaves her in charge of this island. Yeah. 
and um, which would have been hard enough because the very few people left on the island, you know, the, the able-bodied men are up at war. Yep. The able-bodied women have gone off to work in you know war factories. Um, left as a lot of weirdos. But the U.S. military deposits on this island 90 Italian prisoners of war. See, that that was such an interesting detail. And I'm sure, of course, it was true. It made sense in retrospect, but I didn't even know that this was going on, that they were plopping them in the U.S. in different places. Yeah, 51,000 Italian prisoners of war were plopped in the U.S. in various really? places. Yeah, and they kept them separate from the Germans. It's interesting. You know, Italy was yeah. aligned in World War II. They kept yeah. them separate because the, the Germans were the real enemies. The Italians, ah, yeah, you know, I know. <laughs> the Italians just made a bad decision. Right. And, uh, right. And kept them separate. And they also wanted Italy to join uh, America uh, in, the, in the war effort. Right. And, and eventually Italy did. So they kept and they not only put them in different camps, but they let them work. Yeah. yeah. America was, was shorthanded in the war. Yeah. And especially on an island like this, there's no fishermen, there's no farmers, uh, there's cranberry yeah. farmers here. Yeah. And so they let them out, and which is all fine and good. But then one after another, uh, Italian prisoners show up dead, yeah. uh, murdered, some quite uh, gruesomely. And my hero, Mary Beth Swan, captain of the police force at Fourth Cliff, has to find a serial killer. Right. Who's, a, who's afoot and a loose on this right. island. It's a, it's a, it's a great thing. You know what I like about this story uh, to my listeners, why well, I'm going to recommend this to you is it's, it operates on a lot of cool levels. Michael is a poet, as he told you, and linguistically, this is reflected in the book. Well done. It's, it's a pleasure to read um, on that level, but it's got such a great blend of interesting historical stuff for people who like to learn something. Ah, sometimes I care, sometimes I don't, but it's always cool in this very compelling story. So if you like a little, take a learn something, you can do that. But if you want a story, it's definitely got that, and it's you, nicely read. So it's really it's a great combination of of factors, right? And it it's always one of those interesting things where it when you describe this time and place, I didn't understand these kinds of things were going on. I'm not a, that much of a student of history. It makes perfect sense though that the, it would operate this way, even though I had no knowledge of these little pockets of Italians on these little islands and that they were working and so on. It makes perfect sense in retrospect, but of course it was a kind of a not a secret, but just wasn't something. When we think about World War II, there's so many huge stories, and that wasn't one of them, right? Such a small one. But it's a home front story, and it's yeah. It's, um, it's also you know the role of the mafia in World War II is interesting, and how the mafia assisted in the American invasion of uh, Italy, and it, the mafia gets involved, <laughs> the FBI gets involved. In it. Right. Um, I'm drawing on my own, on my personal experience. This is part of the joy of writing too. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood. Uh, I have a great affection for Italy and its people. Um, and uh, and the World War II story you heard, I had to draw on my tools as an historian all the time. Yeah, so I bet. I bet. the language. I had to get the language right. Yeah. The dress right. I remember I, I wrote a sentence that said, uh, oh, this is a game changer. And then you look up in Miriam Webster, Webster, but the first use of game changer was 1970. Really? So they can't, they can't use that. <laughs> I did that with every sentence, Bill. I mean, I looked at Did you? Could they use this sentence? Would they would they say this? Would they dress this way? Yeah. Uh, one very funny story. So you know, there's a certain role for a 1941 Harley Davidson motorcycle on this. Right. I'm sitting here in Jaffa in the Middle East. Where am I right. going to get a 1941 Harley Davidson motorcycle? Right. The craziest thing on YouTube, and you can look it up. The LAPD has put a a clip from 1941 about the use of Harley Davidson motorcycles. And they go into intricate detail about how to use the motorcycle, what are the different parts of the motorcycle. 
I mean, I, I, I laughed hysterically when I found this thing. I couldn't believe it and uh, and used it. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> what a, what a the YouTube is unbelievable. I had to repair my washing machine. And there was a video of some guy describing how to put the part I needed into the washing <laughs> machine. I was like, how the hell? It's all on. There. It's a miracle. And so, okay, here's the question I have for you. I was wondering about this. I, I love going to writers' conferences and, this, and the like, because sometimes as a writer, talking the conversations you have about writing are different with other writers than with anybody else. There's something you know. And then I would suspect conversations you have with uh, public servants and, and foreign diplomats and, and so on is different than, than talking to me about it. Do you ever have people where your love of fiction writing and the arts and your knowledge of civil service and international relations crosses enough that you can talk about both fluently? Is there anybody else like you, Michael, where you can talk about both things with that person? Not many. I'll give you one example. Uh, Congressman Steve Israel from Long Island. Yeah. Uh, great Congress. He's no longer in Congress. He actually owns a bookstore, and I'm giving a book launch what? at that bookstore. He owns a yep, bookstore? Yep. It's it's called Theodore's after Theodore uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and it's in yep. Oyster Bay, okay. uh, Long Island. But Steve was a great congressperson with a great with a deep love of history. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm a Civil War buff among other things, and I walked yeah. into his office when there's a huge picture of Lincoln talking, uh, a, a, a giving a, a conference with generals, and I walked on. I said Antietam, September 19, 1862. <laughs> that was it. We we, we were friends wow. in that moment. Wow. Right. And, um. And he has now written several novels uh, about uh, Washington, sort of sort of comic uh, novels about American yeah. uh, politics. Is good, good writer, and he now owns a bookstore. Wow! All right, so there's one. It's an unusual blend. It's an unusual blend. Unusual blend, but you know, some of the great politicians were were great writers. Uh, oh this yeah. Country Israel was founded by writers. Really, by this is an act of imagination. Yeah. Um, and the founding fathers and mothers of the United States were great writers. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's not, it's certainly not untrue. So you said early in our conversation that you see writing as a spiritual, I don't know if you would use the word practice. Uh, I like to, I, I, I agree. That's been my approach to it. It's what I teach. It's what sort of leads these conversations to some degree. I know why I call it that. How, what, what about it helps you? Why do you see it that? What about the writing experience? Would you can categorize as spiritual to you? What does that mean? Because it comes in, in a sort of a relevatory way. Okay. It, it, the, the plot reveals itself to you. Yeah. And the feeling of one is one of revelation. Yeah. It's yeah. it's, it's one, one of discovery. It's, I, I don't know, to put it in, in a sort of very uh, uh, Methodist way. It's kind of grace. Right. It's a, it's a feeling of grace. And right. my overwhelming response when I am struck by inspiration is to be, feel gratitude. Ah. That's good. I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you. It's yeah. just, it's that moment of grace. Yeah. I I so agree. I interviewed James Lee Burke on this podcast. Uh, are you familiar yeah. with the, the suspense writer? And he's, and I knew he hadn't, I knew he, I could tell after one paragraph, he didn't outline. I just could tell by the language. And I was like, James, you don't outline, do you? And he What's was like, outline? <laughs> some people do it. Some people don't. I can sort oh, of tell. I don't do it. Yeah. Well, that surprised me. And I said, you don't outline, do you? He said, no. And then he said, he was the first one who really said this. He said, look, he's 83 at 84 at this point. He said, if you think, he says, you better make peace with whatever God you pray to. Because if you think you do this alone, just give it up now. And this guy who's so written, funny. you know, 30 books and, you know, he didn't put it in any, you know, I don't know, you know what his beliefs beyond that are, but I totally agree. And I loved his forthright. Like you got to make peace with whatever it is you think is giving where these ideas are coming from. Because I know for me, the moment I took any credit, it shut the door. 
And if I stopped taking credit, the door opened again. Does that make so sense? Interesting. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, the, the inspiration will leave. And you yeah. never know it's going to come back. <laughs> you know. Will I ever write a short story again? Will I ever write a novel? Right, again? right. And does he realize it's, it's completely out of your control? I can't conjure this stuff. No, you, know? you can't. You can't manufacture it. it. it no. It conjures me. <laughs> I, I have I, a theory, I, though. I have a theory about this. See yeah. what you think. I believe that one of our, the one thing we have control over is our attention and our, our attention. And that my job as a writer is to show up and be, and be present with myself, meaning keep up with my own curiosity. Don't, don't think about my old version of myself. Be here right now with what I'm actually interested in and don't have any doors closed to what I think I need to be interested in to really open to and let it be anything. And that's when the muse, whatever you call, is most likely to speak. It's when I say, no, it's got to be this, that I sometimes shut it down. Does that make sense? Total sense. And, and, and it, it's fear not. Exactly. Fear not because the spirit is with you. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and that because there's lots of fear involved. And if you're especially writing something that, that's that's out of the box. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a good example from, from Swan's War. Uh, believe it or not, this is my first whodunit. Okay. I know you've had okay. mystery writers. I have. Very them. good. Um, and I, I found it sort of stylistically very challenging. You've got to lead your, your reader down various cul-de-sacs yeah, and, and, yeah. and at the end, when they find out who really did it, they can't say, ah, oh, that's, that, that's ridiculous. They yep. have to say, oh, I should have seen that. How can that's I not right. have seen that? That's hard. That's stylistically. Right. That's Aristotle said surprising, but inevitable. Right. <laughs> Here, three quarters of the way through this book. I had no idea who did it. Ah! And I was. Perfect investigating along with Mary Beth Swan. Yeah. So I was so in this book that I was with her doing the investigation. And uh, and almost as as surprised as she was when she finds out who did it. See, you'd be surprised, Michael, how many yeah. mystery writers I've interviewed who have, have who have the same thing. Like, I don't know who did it, which baffles it. my <laughs> mystery reading loving father, who sure they all know from the get-go. I'm like, no, no, they don't. But the thing is, it was one of the it was part of the beauty of the book. That's right. It was the beauty of the book. That's was, right. It, let's find out today. That's right. <laughs> let's find out a clue. That's and right. uh and that was a that was that was a great fun. Great that is fun. A, that that's fun a great fun. story. Yeah, and, man. Uh, as soon as I stop discover as soon as I forget. That my job is yeah. discovery. I lose all interest. As, I, as soon as I'm just doing the job, it's I can't, I can't do it. You know. But I also have to, I have to challenge myself every time. So I wrote a short story yesterday morning. Just woke up, wrote a short story. Right. About a a, a woman writer uh, who led a, uh, a a life of debauchery and indulgence. Right. Uh, wrote terrible reviews about people, hurt people, abandoned <laughs> right. children, everything, right. and dies and finds herself in hell. And it opens up a conversation between her and Satan. Satan is not identified. He's just he. And, you know, he says, oh, you're, you're a writer. We love writers down here. Some of our favorite guests. He says, guests, well, you know, residents. Right. And, and she finds herself in all it. She has just what she wants. She has a room. It's quiet. There's no clock. There's no deadlines. Right. Reams of, 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 of fiction, poetry, terzarima, you name it. It's coming out of right. her computer. And she sends it off for, for publication, and all she gets is rejection notices <laughs> over and over and over again. So a couple of centuries go by. She she doesn't mind getting flayed and, and dipped in right. oil. She can deal with it. She actually 
she that actually inspires her to write. Suffering is what gets her to write. Right. Okay. Calling suffering to herself and calling suffers to suffering to others gets her to write. That's the spur. But she can't stand anonymity. And uh, so she asks for another uh, an audience <laughs> with, with, with her landlord. Right. And uh, and he, he she complains that there's no deadline, which of course is the, the joke of the whole story. Because in hell, you're already dead. You and, right. <laughs> uh, fine. So th- to me, that was that was a writer's hell. Uh, being right and right and right, but always be anonymous. That's ah uh, the ego. It's so true, Michael. This has been a a little surprisingly great conversation. It went directions I didn't anticipate, which is always the best conversations. I'm not quite done. Cool. First of all, Swan's War. All right. When is it coming out or has it come out? What, where are we? It's going to come out in uh, mid, mid, mid-October. Okay. So it'll be out soon. Pre-order it, people. Get a jump. Please. Get a jump. Swan's War. Um, I got one more question for you, though. Please. One more question. And I want you to do, you've done a lot of writing. I want you to think about all the writing you've done in your life. And if it's taught you anything, it's taught you what? It's taught me to, um, and I hate to sound cliche, yeah. is to let the force be with me. Yeah. That that I'm a vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a tool. Yeah. I'm not the I'm the means, not the end. And to have faith, just yeah. to have faith, even when it seems, even when you've got uh, a collection of record rejections that is as, as thick as the <laughs> Manhattan phone book, uh, don't lose that faith. And if if a writer is who and what you are, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Good answer. Michael, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Great, Bill. Thank you so much. Real delight. Yeah, see, you never know what you're going to get, do you? You don't know. A spiritual ambassador. Why not? Guy has a really interesting relationship to writing and just love. Anyway, see, I love that. Love talking to him. Uh, Listen, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I'll be back again with another guest next week. I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries. Thank you, my friend. I want to thank all of you out there for tuning in. And uh, in the meantime, in the meantime, till next week, I want you to go find something you love to do, something you just, just it's easy to do because you're interested in it. Go find something you love to do and do it. <laughs>